All right, well, good morning. It's good to see you all out here. I'm glad some of you made your trips and made it back in the midst of all the storms, and so that's pretty good. Um, how many of you had already set up your Christmas decorations before Thursday? A few, yeah. yeah. We did that this year, unlike most years. Uh, have any of you, did any of you do it after Thursday? And then how many of you haven't done it yet? Okay, got some of each. I don't know what it is for you that indicates that uh, the Christmas season is here, <laughs> but it's a special time of year, and in fact, uh, there are many of those who um, believe it's such a special time of year that of any month of the year, this is the month where people are the most generous. They feel that it's it's maybe the spirit of the holidays, uh, more time with family, this this environment this is conducive to generosity why is that why why is that and we're going to be talking about generosity for the next four weeks and yet um, within that we're going to see that when I say generosity it's not so narrowly defined as we make it and we're going to understand that this spirit behind generosity is contagious and it can be passed on, and it can impact the people around you. Now, as I began to map this out, and I came to this first message in the series, I kind of just trashed it. And I don't always do that, but this one I just said, no, nope, that's next week, this week. God really impressed upon my heart. Rather than just jump in and say, you know, it's Christmas. Let's go for it. Be generous. Let's talk about our motivation for that and, and how we find the motivation for that in the midst of whatever season of life we are in. Because the Christmas spirit isn't something that is just uh, triggered with a switch, right? It doesn't just happen whenever I go get my creme brulee latte at Starbucks and their holiday drinks are out. Um, it actually comes about through understanding what God has done. Now, we know the song that says, you know, deck the halls with bells of holly, tis the season to be jolly. What if you don't feel jolly? <laughs> what if you don't feel like being generous? What if you don't feel very contagious or winsome with um, Christmas spirit? What happens in that case? Have you ever been in a season of life where it could be any time of the year where you just didn't feel like celebrating? You didn't feel like things were going the right way. And we know Jesus is the reason for the season. When we talk about Christmas, everybody says that Jesus is the reason for the season. But Jesus is also the reason for the season of life you're in right now. And he's the reason for the seasons of life that we all walk through. So we're going to dig into that this morning and, and begin to uh, understand that. What does it mean that Jesus is the reason for the season? What can we know about God's work in the midst of the messes of life? And how can that help us in different seasons? And so I want to turn this morning to a book about seasons and times in life. If uh, you go to Psalms right in the middle of your Bible, the book of Psalms, and then go to your right, you will find Ecclesiastes. Yes, it's an interesting name, Ecclesiastes. Uh, it's like, what on earth does that mean? Is it a place, a person, a thing? Well, uh, the, the word there means preacher. One who gathers people to deliver a message and speak to them. We believe this was written by King Solomon. He's that king that came, the son of David. And, 
And he was asked, what do you want? What is your request from God? I want to be wise, is what he said. And so God said, not only will you be wise, but I will add to your wisdom riches and fame. And you'll be known around the whole world for your wisdom. So he wrote the book of Proverbs, and he writes this book of Ecclesiastes. It's a book for the people, but it's really the reflections of a man who had everything the world has to offer, and yet ends up in a place of questioning, where is God in all of this? If you were to read this, or I just pull out little parts, you would sense quite a bit of despair as he works in and out of all the things he's seeing in this world. And yet, we're not going to stay there today, but we do want to get the feeling that he has. And I just want to start off by reading to you just some of the quotes from within this book to get us familiar with uh, his point of view and his perspective that he's taken. And then we'll really hone in on chapter 3. He says, In much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. We get that, don't we? To going from kids that are carefree to understanding more and having more wisdom and that there seems to be more that you realize as you grow older. And so in his request for wisdom, he said, wow, the more I know, the more I don't want to know. And he says, I hated all my toil, which is toil under the sun. Toil meaning work, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. Who knows whether he'll be wise or be a fool? Yet he will be the master of all for which I have toiled, and I use my wisdom under the sun. This is vanity. So turn, I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who didn't work for it. When it's all over, it goes back in the box. Some would say this describes what many people go through as a midlife crisis. They begin to wonder, wonder, what am I working for? All this stuff eventually can't take it with me. Then he looked around the world and saw oppressions being done. And he said, tears of the oppressed, and no one was comforting them. On the side of their oppression, was, there was power and None of them had anyone to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead are more fortunate than those who are being oppressed and who are still alive. Then he says, there's vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. He's saying, why do good, good things happen to bad people? They seem to prosper. They're ignoring God. And why do bad things happen to people who are really striving after God? That's something I've asked in my lifetime, and I bet you've had to face that too. It's a very big question, a big hurdle for many people. And he kind of concludes a couple times, he says this phrase, he says, I've seen everything in the world, and in the end, it's all a striving after the wind. Isn't that a great word picture? I can know the wind's effect, and we felt it this week. But I can't grab it or hold it. We can try and harness it. But we know it's there. And yet, where does it come from? And can any of us stop it? No, (laughs) we cannot. Merry Christmas, right? (laughs) Oh man, you're a bah humbug this morning, Pastor Kevin. Uh, Why are you headed with this? Now, 
that's the reality of a broken world we live in and, and the ripple effect of sin that impacts the whole of creation is what he's describing. He's describing a broken world that is impacted by our rebellion against God. And that curse against sin not only impacts our relationship with God and our eternity, but it impacts the world we live in. So we're broken, we have disease, we have struggles, we have relationship issues, and, and people can do the right thing and it doesn't work out to their benefit, and people can do the wrong thing and yet they prosper. That's all the ripple effect of this broken world we live in. But how is God at work in the midst of it? That's the question we must ask this morning. And a question that we turn to, and I think, look at here in chapter 3. And as I read it, you will recognize it from many facets throughout the world. This has been shared. I'm going to read the first eight verses. It says, For everything there's a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill, and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones. A time to gather stones together. Time to embrace. A time to refrain from embracing. And a time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear. A time to sow. A time to keep silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. And all of you have that song in your head now that have heard it from the 60s, right? You know, each human life has a span to it, a beginning and an end. And in that duration and within that span, there are moments of time and momentous events and seasons of life that we all walk through. And he captures it so poetically here. But for many, we may look and say, this is just random, by chance, what happens in our life and the things that come across. And maybe some say, well, it's just God rolling some big celestial pair of dice to see how our lot will end up. You know, this first line here, this for everything there is a season. It's translated in different, um, in different ways. It says, for every matter under heaven, it, it's translated every purpose, every event, every delight, every affair, every matter, every Activity, every project, every experience, every moment is God appointed. Every moment is controlled by God. Every moment and every season comes from God. He's in charge. He is what we call sovereign over all the world. Nothing happens that is beyond his reach or catches him off guard. And in this grand opening verse, the author declares, all moments are indeed overseen by God. He is in control. He is the one we look to. He is the most transcendent of all. And it's no wonder that this passage was made into a, a well-known song here, but it's quoted around the world. There, when people are struggling, a poetry is written based on it. People read it at funerals. No matter what they believe of God, this is read at funerals, isn't it? Shared in memorial services, talked about. Because it gathers and, and talks about, it really just outlines life as we understand it. And it's noteworthy to look that there's peaks and valleys. And then often out of something that is dying, 
something has to die, and especially if you're a farmer, you know the harvest or planting, something dies, and when it dies, it then brings forth new life. And even within our human bodies, there's bacteria that have to bring death in order to bring life. And the scriptures are full of this kind of metaphor and picture. Uh, Paul tells us that we have new life in Christ, therefore we are to reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. To put on the armor of God, to put off things which entangle us. And so this idea of seasons comes into play. There are times where you laugh and you're enjoying life, and there are times when you're mourning. And there are seasons when everything is a toil and a struggle. And there are others when things just seem to be flowing right and you don't want it to ever change. That's the flow of life that he is describing so well here and laying out with all of these couplets of words in this poem. Weeping, laughing, mourning, and dancing. I don't know if there's ever a time for you to see me dance. But as you look at this, you see, this is the life we embrace. And even within this last week, we've had times of celebrating and rejoicing, right? Together as family. And there are others who have times where things are struggled. Even Jesus said, you know, there's a time that you're going to destroy this temple, but I will raise it up and come to life again. I can remember paddling out in the ocean, and I got invited to go surfing on this last trip to Hawaii. I was like, should I do that? But the invitation was for our last day there, so I thought it unwise to take that risk. But the night before, we went out to this place called Barber's Point to check out where the guy wanted to take me. As soon as I got there, I knew I made the right call not to go. But um, I can remember when I was going out, and you you kind of sit on the beach and you watch uh, when you're going to go out in the water. And uh, when a wave comes... Uh, You take your board, whether it's a little boogie board or a surfboard, and you push the tip of it down, and you go duck dive under the wave and come up on the other side. If you leave your board up, you just get wiped out, especially if they're three feet or above the waves, um, if they're that size. Now, as you paddle out, you duck dive underneath the wave, you get under it, and you move on. That's kind of what we do in life sometimes. We know as you grow in life, you say, I know a wave is coming. I know how to handle this. I've been here before. It's still going to cause me to change. It's going to impact me, but I'm going to get under the real brunt of it. I'm going to kind of duck under it. It's not going to wipe me out because I've been through it before. You see, one time I was going out, and I'd not experienced this before, but the tide was beginning to shift, and at some point the sets began to roll in quicker. And sets are like three or four waves in a row. They come in sets. And you try and paddle and get just beyond where they're breaking. That way you can pick one and try and ride it. Well, I was out there and I was paddling and I go down and up and then another three to four foot wave. And I was like, down and up. They started to come and and whenever they start pounding you like that and the breaks come quicker and quicker, you lose your breath, you get disoriented and you begin to struggle. And that's what happened to me. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't bear it anymore. I was in the midst of it. I didn't know what to do. All you do is just down and up, down and up. Otherwise, you're just going to get wiped out. And it's exhausting. Have you ever been in that point in your life where it just seems like one thing after another keeps pounding on you? And you're like, I could handle one of these things, Lord, but why? One wave after another just keeps pounding you. One after another, one circumstance, it just seems like, Lord, why? I, 
I'm trying to catch my breath and come up. And, and you know what? Uh, it's bad enough at work. And now my friend got a bad diagnosis. And they're struggling. And, and then the car broke down. And then this happened. And, and it's like, oh, Lord. Why? Why, why, why? We begin to struggle and look and, and try to catch our back. And just like me in the ocean, you get disoriented and exhausted. And you know what happened next. I got wiped out. A wave took me and pounded me right into the coral below and then wiped out again and finally pushed me back to shore. And I just sat on the beach, <laughs> wiped out, tired and exhausted. And yet, sitting there, I began to see and watch people were navigating it and riding the waves, having fun. They'd get wiped out occasionally, but they were seeming to enjoy it. Yeah, I couldn't. <laughs> I couldn't seem to get around it. I needed a big picture view, kind of a shore view of what was going on. And I think that's what we need sometimes in the midst of the, both the joys and the struggles of life. We need to step back and get this picture of seasons in life and understand what God is doing and where he's at work. And at, at times I felt and come alongside even solid, mature believers who've been pounded, and I've been pounded before, and uh, I can feel just like Solomon and be like, oh, this is all vanity. It's just chasing after the wind. You know, I'm doing all these things for God, sacrificing, being generous, I'm showing up on Sundays, trying to use my gifts, and yet it doesn't seem to get me anywhere. But see, you can also be in a point where things are just going so great and things are so smooth that God is back on the shelf and he's not a part of it. And that's why I think there's couplets here. Solomon notices that, hey, when things are going great, you need the Lord. And when things are going bad, you need the Lord. But you need him in all of it. We tend to uh, come to him when things are really bad in the waves or start to doubt him. And yet when things are going well, he can be pushed to the side, even in the Christmas season. And so as we look at this, I want to talk about what's our path Back to joy. What, what's our path look like when we're, we're trying to find our way to joy, to being contagious, to being generous, uh, to making it through? Uh, what's the pathway around uh, the waves? You see, what I learned is that you had to take a, a parallel or go 90 degrees to the waves, get out of where they're breaking, then go up and around in that circumstance. <laughs> oh, that would have been easier. But once you're in the midst of them, it's hard to get your orientation, and, and to figure that out. Um, there were some huge currents on the North Shore when we went this time. A guy was out there surfing this backwash, and we didn't want our kids anywhere near it. It was dangerous. The lifeguard was there. He said, only the pros can do this. One guy got out there. He, in one second, he was 200 feet out in a riptide out in the ocean. We're like, oh. Everybody kept yelling, go parallel. Go, just go straight to the left, and you'll get out of that current. Um, and yet, what we need to do is realize how do we take that path out in order to get joy, both in the good times and the bad. And so, the first thing we see here in this text is that for everything there's a season, every time and matter under heaven. And so, I think that tells us our posture. Our posture is to recognize the seasons, Solomon is honest about life's seasons and challenges of work and justice and sickness throughout this book. But the first step is to realize what you're going through. And you know what? God made us emotional people. 
And it's good to celebrate and have fun as believers. But it's also okay to be frustrated and to wonder and to talk to God. You see it throughout the scriptures, especially Solomon and his father David in the Psalms. David was really good at just declaring to the Lord, I am frustrated, Jesus. He'd say, God, I don't know what's going on. And then he'd work through that. And by the end of the psalm, he would remember and praise the Lord. And it's okay for us to realize that we're getting pounded, it hurts, it's discouraging, and our emotions are from God, and we can learn to just put those at his feet and be honest with him. But as believers, we don't have to stay there. But we can start there with that posture of recognizing, okay, this is the season I'm in, and I want to work through it, and I want to bring it before the Lord, and even allow yourself to walk through the emotions of it whatever those may be. But as we do that, we begin to shift and and change our perspective. And so we look down here in verse 9. And in verse 9 he says, What gain is it? Uh, What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy. And he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is a gift from God. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which has already been, that which is to be, that which has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. So as we see this, uh, he moves, moves through these emotions and realities to a different perspective. And that first perspective, he says, is this, and I love this. This is a great verse. He says, eternity is in the heart of man. Eternity is in the heart of man. Uh, we have seen, or you know, those of you who are old enough to remember VH1, it's, uh, the whole reason that channel existed was to tell about movie stars and all the rock stars that had it all in this world. But then it came crashing down because they reached that mountaintop of fame and money and realized it was empty. <laughs> it didn't satisfy. He said, there's so many things we can chase in this world, but in the end, without God present, they don't satisfy. We know there's more to this life than just the right here and now. Eternity is set in our hearts. And if we're honest, we know it. And we try to fill that God-shaped vacuum with so many things. And yet it is God who has created us eternal in his image. And so life is eternal in To help you get a perspective in the Christmas season, look at a wreath. A wreath reminds us that God is eternal. It's a circle, never ending. When you see a wreath, remember, God is eternal. I am created for eternity, and so are you. That's a key perspective. Because if we understand we're created for eternity, that helps us to understand and to get a little bit of a perspective on what we're going through. But you see, sometimes for those who know Jesus, we know there is eternity in heaven, but heaven seems so far away. 
and yet not close enough when we're dealing with frustrations and brokenness. You ever feel that way? That heaven just seems so far away, so distant, so unreachable, and yet it's not close enough. I just want heaven to be here now. It's a challenge of our lives, isn't it? Well, as he begins to talk about this perspective, he gives us a next step, and that's a position to be in. And he repeats this throughout this book. He comes to this conclusion that we are to fear the Lord. We are to fear God. And as he walks through this in in chapter 5, verse 7, he says, For when dreams increase and the words grow, there is vanity. But God is the one whom you must fear. In the Proverbs, he writes, The beginning of wisdom, the beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord. That is a place we are to start. We are to fear the Lord. And this idea of fear can often be misunderstood in how we use it, but this idea of fear is awe and wonder at the majesty of God. It's awe-inspiring fear. It's knowing he is perfect and holy and all-powerful so that all you can do in his presence is fall to your knees and worship. That's the fear of the Lord we're talking about, the awe of how amazing he is. It's not uh, a fear of a tyrant who you think is going to crush you. It's being in the presence of someone who you know is glorious and all-powerful. And you're just brought to your knees in trembling awe of who he is. And in the New Testament, we can look and we understand the cross. And we can fear God because we have this fear and awe at the, the price paid for our sins. We have this awe and humility knowing the great cost that went into the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the fact that he actually overcame death and rose again. And so not only are we to fear the Lord, but it says we are to fear the Lord and keep his commandments. From a posture of brokenness to a perspective that understands the internality of life, we have these anchors of understanding we can talk to God about anything, that we are eternal, and when we have an awe for God, and that awe is combined with our love for him, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we respond to him. And we respond in obedience to his commands, trusting them. And trusting that it's still good to follow him. And to quote, just do the next right thing. Do the next small right thing. I've seen it in like 20 different things this week, including one popular movie. But it's so true. Take the next right step. So a Tim Tebow interview yesterday, he said, man, when I get on there and I was on the field and I was overwhelmed, we were down and it's overwhelming. You know the crowd's either going to love you or hate you based on this drive. He said, all I could do in that moment was focus on the next play, doing it the way I'd done it over and over and over. And sometimes that's what we need to do is realize that God is God. We need to allow ourselves to be in awe of him and then to just say, okay, Lord, I'm just going to obey in this one small thing, whatever it is that's right in front of me. I can't fathom all this that's going on in my life. I'm going to obey in this one small thing and take that next step back towards you and towards trusting you. 
And within this, we read that when we do that, there are promises that we can cling to. There are promises that we can hold to. Verse 11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. And in verse 14, whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it or taken away from it. And so, God makes all things beautiful in his time. He is at work in our lives. The New Testament reiterates this in so many different ways. Perhaps the most famous is Romans 8.28, where we know that all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. God works all things together for good. And that means that out of our messes, he makes ministry. Out of adversity, he brings hope. And that he is at work in the midst of it all, bringing about his good purposes and maturing us. James says, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds, waves in your life. Because those bring about perseverance, and perseverance works through us and brings about wisdom so that we're not lacking in anything. In Romans 5, it walks through the benefits of walking through trials and struggles that the Lord uses it. 2 Corinthians four seventeen and 18 says this, For this light and momentary affliction, there's your eternal perspective, is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but those that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We're to have that eternal perspective on life. And it begins to come about with these promises that we see in the scriptures. There's a British Methodist preacher, William Sangster. He learned that he had progressive muscular atrophy, and he wasn't going to get well. So in that moment, he had a choice to make. His ministry, his life were going to be drastically changed and over time keep diminishing. And yet, he couldn't stop it. So he wrote down four resolutions, and it was said he kept them to the end. He said, number one, I will never complain to others. He kept that to God. Number two, I will keep my home bright and cheerful. Number three, I will make it a habit of counting the blessings I do have. And number four, I will try, in turn, to do it again the next day. Number four is a key one. (laughs) And he says, I will try to turn whatever this loss is to gain for the kingdom. See, for some, their faith in God and their promises and their choices depend on his response. I will follow God if everything works out here, but if not, I'm not going to trust him. For others, it's based on his promises in scripture. If you read the book of Hebrews, it lists these great men and women of the faith who followed God and toiled for him, and yet the season where their fruit and the labor of their lives took hold was not until they died. He said they never attained it in their lifetime, the blessing. Now some of us, we get to see it. We get the blessing of seeing it. And others, it's their life becomes bigger than it ever was when they were living because of the testimony that they were put in the scriptures. And now we get to learn from them throughout the centuries. And their life has an exponential impact. 
And so we need to remember that there are times, and the reality is there are some who have died for their faith, and their death caused more life to happen, but they never got to see it. And that's a tough pill to swallow sometimes, isn't it? And yet, this approach to life that Solomon wants us to take isn't just, oh, don't worry, be happy. <laughs> it's, uh, he's promoting faith in God, not faith in faith or And if I do this, then God is guaranteed to do this in my life for health and wealth. Now, this kind of faith is only as good as the object of the faith. Our faith is only as good as the object of our faith. And the greatest object of faith is God, the creator. He is the one worthy. He can be trusted. And this is a proper attitude for us. Fear the Lord. It's not, as one author puts it, a cringing of a slave before some cruel master. It's the submission of an obedient child to a loving parent. If we fear God, we need not fear anything else, for he is in control. And so, as we look at this, we need to understand that nothing will bring us complete satisfaction in this world apart from God. But... Nothing in this world should bring us to complete despair because we are gods. We have a posture, a perspective, a position, and promises, and now that leads to a life of persistence. Persistence is that ability to choose to pursue joy and generosity in the midst of any season. I call it resilience. How would you describe somebody who you would say, that person is resilient? I love that word. It's a, you know, they're a resilient person. Think of a boxer, those movies. You just keep, man, boom, getting hit and hit and then shaking it up, getting up off the mat, getting the gloves up and going. Just keep on going. Why? Because you love the battle and you're in there to go for it. You're not going to quit. Just keep getting up and getting up and getting up. I also see that in people who not are getting not knocked down, but those who have things going well, and they keep giving the glory back to God, back to God, thanking Him for what's happening, celebrating with Him, enjoying Him, pointing people towards Him instead of just walking off and saying, I'm enjoying life on my own. It's that picture of being able to not only ride out in the waves, but to catch a wave occasionally and enjoy it. And to find joy in the midst of it, realizing that life is just a a small little piece here on earth of what we've got for eternity. And when we get those glimpses of the gift of God in eternity, we should enjoy them. That's why uh, I want to read to you uh, four verses here that are throughout Ecclesiastes that remind us that this is a season to celebrate. We read here in 2.24, it says, There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat, drink, and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. I hope you did that on Thursday. Enjoyed some great food. I've had four different kinds of pie this week, and I might have more today. But I always got to have homemade whipped cream. That's the key. Now, as you look at this, he goes on in Ecclesiastes 3.22. I saw there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Rejoice in the labor God has given you. 
He has created us to work. And work has meaning and purpose because God gave it to us. Ecclesiastes 8.15 I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat, drink, and be joyful. For this will go well with him through his toil in the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. And then... um, Right here in 3.12, it says, I perceive there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. And this is going to be our bridge to the next month. To be joyful and do good as long as we live. Are we a people that does good? Next week, be here. We have a cool opportunity that's working out. You're going to have an opportunity. We're going to be joining in to do good in this community. And it's because you all have sown seeds over the last several years here at this school. And we're going to have an opportunity to talk about that and to look at what it looks like to do good and the power of doing good in sharing the gospel when we do good to others. And it's going to be amazing and uh, it's contagious, it's infectious, and the joy begins to come. And science will even back that up. The joy begins to come when we do good and we give rather than receive. You see, Max Lucado says that uh, only one-third of Americans surveyed said that they were happy or joyful. All the things we have in our nation, and only one-third of us, 33% could say, we're truly happy. How could this be? We've got the best educational system, or one of the best. It's a, we have advancements in everything, medicine and technology, and yet we can't find an adequate reason to check the yes box on that sometimes. Worldwide, people profess that their most cherished goal in life is to be happy. That's why every commercial you see this month will say that this item, this experience, This movie will bring you that joy, that moment of happiness that you have been looking for. And yet for all its promises, even the best experiences deliver a fragile joy. Here one day, scattered tomorrow by the winds of comparison or by disappointment or unmet expectations. You see, nothing in this world will bring us complete satisfaction apart from God. But nothing should bring us to complete despair when we are gods. Will we choose to adjust and to pursue joy in the midst? And if things are going well, will we choose that perspective and remind ourselves we need to be in awe of God and not ourselves. And we need to put him back at the center of the season and not get so busy that we're too busy for the works of God. So get up off the mat, keep fighting, keep fighting for joy. And this room is full of people that are in your corner. They want to back you up. They want to hold your arms up. They want to encourage you and lift you up. You are not alone. And this morning I want to close with a written prayer, a prayer written for Advent. And I want to pray it over you as we close this morning. God, as we head into December... We pause to remember all that you've done in our lives, our families, and our community. 
We praise you because you are the God who saves. You are Emmanuel, God with us. We thank you that our hope is in you, not in circumstances or people. Because we hope in you, we are confident that you will fulfill your promises to us. Remind us today of what truly matters. Fix our hearts on you, Lord. Help us to see how you are working, even in the middle of our waiting. Draw us closer to you this Christmas season. Prepare our hearts for, for, the, for the fulfillment of your promises. In Jesus' name, amen. Now please stand.